Well, it's great to, of course, be at church every single Sunday. It's always such a joy. And I love the worship set this morning, just being able to sing these songs together as the people of God. And uh, I am very excited about Psalm 21. It's funny when you are preaching and you're studying different passages of the Bible, there's certain ones that you know you're going to be really excited about, and it just seems obvious that this is going to be a fun passage to preach. And then there's other ones that aren't so obvious, but as you dig in and you spend time in them, you find that they are so enriching to your own soul. And so you trust, as I trust this morning, that a passage like Psalm 21 will be enriching to all of your souls as well. The question that presents itself, I think, most directly out of Psalm 21 for each of us today is this, what do you do after God answers your prayers? What do you do after God answers your prayers? When you get exactly what you've asked for, you came to God in prayer, probably came to God in a time of distress and great need, you poured out your heart before him and God said, yes. And God gave you exactly what you asked for. What do you do when that happens? Do you move right on to the next item on your prayer list, right? Just kind of cross out the thing that God answered and cool, let me just start asking for the next thing. Or do you take time to thank God and to praise God, to pour out your heart before him in gratitude and say, Lord, I can't believe that you answered me. Thank you for answering my prayer. So far, in our studies through the Psalter, I would say that more often than not, we've been kind of slapped upside the head in this direction. We've been slapped upside the head uh, when we felt tempted to not come to God in prayer when we're facing a crisis. In other words, the Psalms have been trying to correct us and call us away from a dependence on ourselves and human resources. And the Psalter has been saying, no, 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 don't do that. When there's a challenge, when there's something that you're facing, you need to take that to God. But Psalm 21 is going to come from the other side and smack us upside the head and say, when you've brought your request to the Lord as you should, and he answers you, you got to be a thankful person. Your response has got to be one that comes back to the Lord and says, thank you for answering my prayers. You're so good. Far be it from us to be like the nine lepers when Jesus healed 10 and Jesus sent them off to the priest to go and show themselves to the priest so that they could be declared clean. And all 10 of them were healed and yet only one returned to give thanks. And our Lord looked at the disciples in the crowds and he said, were there not 10 lepers? And only one has come back to say, Thank you. To be honest, it's usually pretty easy to pray when we're in times of distress. Yes, as I just mentioned, the Psalms are warning us against the temptation to not do that because we, we struggle, but it is usually pretty easy for us to come to the Lord when we have a great crisis, right? When we're concerned about a diagnosis from the doctor, when we get laid off from work, when our children are going wayward and straying away from the Lord, it's it's oftentimes relatively easy to become a prayerful person. But making time to pray after the trouble is gone can sometimes be quite a chore. We are prone to be people who just get what we want and move on to the next thing. 
And so this psalm, Psalm 21, approaches that issue. I titled today's sermon, When You Get Exactly What You've Asked For. Now, last week we studied a psalm that was used in the nation of Israel to prepare the people for battle. If you were here, you'll remember that God's people put together a liturgy or a worship service in order to prepare themselves and to seek the blessing of God on their impending battle. They had, we don't know what specific battle they were facing, but they had enemies who were coming against them and they were strong enemies. And God's people, instead of trusting in their own resources, came and placed their trust firmly in the Lord. And they made sacrifices to the Lord. And then the congregation prayed over their king. The king's confidence and faith was strengthened. And then the army marched out to battle. That was Psalm 20. Psalm 21 can be seen as a counterpart to Psalm 20. Psalm 21 is now the celebration psalm. And it's a celebration because God answered the prayers of Psalm 20. God gave the king victory over their enemies. And thus, Israel's future was secured. This is especially likely because you'll notice that Psalm 21 picks up right where Psalm 20 left off. If you look in your Bible at Psalm 20 verse 9, that psalm ended this way. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. Look at how verse tw- or Psalm 21 begins. O Lord, in your strength, the king rejoices. And in your salvation, how greatly he exults. So Psalm 20 ended, God save the king. And Psalm 21 begins, God, you saved the king. Thank you, Lord. You did it. You did exactly what we asked. Now, Psalm 21 has two main parts to it. Verses 1 through 7, and then verses 8 through 12. And then that's followed by a concluding praise that's offered to the Lord. And so we're going to break this psalm down that way. Verses 1 through 7 really is a summary that tells us that the king's prayers have been answered. The king's prayers have been answered. Interestingly, in verses 1 through 6, we see many direct answers to the prayers of Psalm 20. I want to show this to you. You're going to have to look down at your Bible. There's going to be a lot of this for the next two minutes, up and down. But uh, we're seeing these prayers of last week specifically got answered. Notice here in verse 1, the king is rejoicing in God's salvation. That means he's rejoicing in the fact that God delivered this military conflict in this battle. Now, this was what was prayed for back in chapter 20. Uh, You see it in several places, but look at verse 5. They say, may we shout for joy over your salvation. God, we want to be rejoicing over your salvation. Will you give it to us? And now we read again here in verse 1 that the king is rejoicing because God gave him salvation. A direct answer to prayer. Look at verse 2 here in Psalm 21. We learn there that God gave the king his heart's desire. We also read that God did not withhold the request of the king's lips. Look back at Psalm 20, specifically verse 4. They asked for this, may he grant your heart's desire. 
And then in verse 5, may the Lord fulfill all your petitions. So they prayed for this. God, give the king his heart's desire. God, answer the prayer of his lips. And now in Psalm 21, they're rejoicing because that's exactly what God had done. Down in verse 4, we read that the king was asking God for life. He asked life of you and you gave it to him, we read. Well, of course, going back to Psalm 20 in verse 1, we read there, May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. Will you not let him perish in battle? Will you give him life and protect the king? Finally, notice in verse 6, we read here, You make him glad with the joy of your presence. If you go back to Psalm 20, verse 5, they were asking God, may we shout for joy over your salvation. So this is an answer now to the prayers of Psalm 20. God has done for the people exactly what they were asking. And remember, I told you last week that when we were studying Psalm 20, we were not supposed to see that as some happy church service some celebration church service. This was on the eve of a great battle that they didn't know the outcome of. It was a solemn, terrifying service. And they were not certain of victory when they began that service. And they were praying, God, please save the king. And God, please deliver us from this mighty military foe. And now God has done it. And so his people come together to celebrate and to worship. And I want you to notice something in this psalm. The king here in Psalm 21 truly believes that it is the Lord who has given him the victory. He literally says that in every line of these first six verses. I want to draw your attention to it. Verse 1, he says, O Lord, in your strength and in your salvation. In verse 2, we read this. You have given him his heart's desire. You have not withheld the request of his lips. In verse 3, you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. In verse 4, you gave it to him. In verse 5, his glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. Finally, in verse 6, you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your presence. King David sees things rightly. King David is fully aware that the reason why he was successful has very little to do with his own strength and military prowess. And it has a lot to do, may I say, it has everything to do with the fact that his God is a warrior who fights his battles for him. If you look at David's history, if you look at Israel's history, and we talked about this a little bit last week, they always faced long shots. It was always a long shot. They were always the underdog, and that was to make this point. And we can see here evidence of why David would be called a man after God's own heart. Because David was just never willing to take the credit, never willing to listen to the praises that people would laud him with. They would try to boost his ego and build him up. And you know what? He was a great soldier and he was a great king and he was a great leader. But he never took the glory for himself. He always knew 
that if God doesn't go with me, we will perish. And so, as we learned last week, he said, and the people said, some trust in chariots and horses, but we will trust in the name of the Lord our God. Now, before we move on to the next section, let's just zoom in on a couple of ideas in these first six verses. The first is I want to draw your attention to verse two, the end of it. Notice the little musical, musical note there, Selah. It's the only time it's used in Psalm 21. It's there in verse two. We've talked about this key word before. It's a word that we don't exactly know the meaning of, but most scholars think that it is calling for a moment where you pause in the song or you pause in the reading and you meditate. So it's a moment that you're supposed to really reflect on what we just read. And so the Selah in Psalm 21 comes after verse 2. And what does verse 2 say? It says, you have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. So pause and meditate. On what exactly? Well, the answer is this. Pause and meditate on the fact that God actually answered David's prayers. The reason this is so important is because we need this reminder that when we take our request to God, especially when we come in faith and in earnestness, when we are in the throes of a great crisis, God answers the prayers of his people. I can't be the only one who sometimes faces the temptation to question whether God's listening to me, to question whether God actually cares, to question whether God actually can deliver me from some hardship. Have you never faced something in your life where you thought to yourself, I know God can part the Red Sea. I know God could slay Goliath. I know that God could raise Christ from the grave. And I even know that God could take care of the needs of every other Christian around me. But man, I don't know if he can answer this one for me. I don't know if he will answer this one for me. Will praying actually change anything? Psalm 21 is causing all of us to stop and meditate on the fact that prayer does change things. As God's people come to him in faith and in earnestness, God delights in blessing his kids. God delights in standing up and fighting for his children so that his name is made great throughout the earth. I want you also to notice in verse 4 that there's a really interesting expression here. Verse 4 says, Of the king that he asked life of you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. That little expression forever and ever catches the attention of most Old Testament scholars. I just want to read you Derek Kidner's thoughts on this. I love what he says. And I quote, while the gift of life forever and ever might have implied to an Old Testament reader, either hyperbole or exaggeration, or an allusion to the endless dynasty promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, 16. The Testament has filled in the picture for the ultimate king, the Messiah, for whom the whole stanza is true without exaggeration. 
In him, the glory, splendor, and majesty of verse 5 reveal their full range of depth and height, as does the joy of God's presence, end quote. Many scholars see in verse 4 a hint, a messianic hint, pointing forward to the promise that would come to all of God's people through the Messiah, Jesus, that because Jesus himself was raised from the grave, triumphing, triumphing over it, all of us who have put our faith in Christ will also enjoy from God life forever and ever. Lastly, before we move on, in verse 6, please notice the source of the king's gladness. Verse 6 tells us that his gladness comes from the joy of your presence. This is so key. More than military victory or even long earthly life, David's joy comes from the presence of God. The fact that God was with him and ever present and near to him. And how much more is God present with us, even as we again reflect on Pentecost Sunday? That it's not just that we as Christians on this side of the death and resurrection of Jesus have occasional access to God. No, we have become the temple of God. That God's presence is actually with us and in us every single day. And then as every single one of us gather together every Lord's day as we do, we are collectively called the temple of the spirit. That there is a unique way and sense in which the presence of God is among us even now. And he's here and he speaks and he ministers through us and to us as we love and serve one another and as we listen attentively for his voice. And this is where David's joy was rooted. And see, this is the mistake that so many people make. We think that our joy is going to come from some other thing. And even Christians make this mistake. Well, if God would just give me fill in the blank. For some of us, we think if we just made this much money, if we could just get to that next step, if we could just find that right earthly relationship, if God would just solve this problem over here, then I would be so happy. I'd never have reason to be sad or depressed again. When we pursue joy that way, it's an exercise in futility. And the scriptures teach us, no, 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 it's not about that. Those things are great. And those things can produce levels of joy. But our deepest joy is always and ever going to be had in the presence of the Lord. It's in right relationship with him. Psalm 1611 reminds us of this truth. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Verse 7 is perhaps the key to this entire psalm. Because verse 7 gives us the reason why God blesses David with this victory. See, it could be possible to think, if you were reading the Psalms, it could be possible to think that the reason why God gave him victory over his enemies is because David went through all of the right steps, right? He offered the right sacrifices last week as we studied. 
They prayed some prayers. They had a worship service and bang, God gives them victory, right? He checked all the right boxes. He did the little right steps. And then God says, okay, cool. I'll give you what you want. This is the God is a vending machine view, right? How does a vending machine work? You walk up to it and you look at it and it's got little treats in there that you want really badly, right? And you say, oh my gosh, I want this snack or I want this drink. And there's instructions, instructions on the vending machine. If I put this much money in there and if I punch this button, I get that treat. And unfortunately, a lot of people think of God that way, that if I just go through the right rituals or I take the right steps or I do the right little process, then bang, out comes the blessing. God gives me the thing that I want. And you could look at Psalm 20 and think that. Sure, they did it right. Remember Saul, when he offered sacrifices to God before a battle, he did it wrong and God caused him to lose. David did it right. God gives him the blessing. Well, that's not how things work. The God of heaven honors faith, not ritual. Hebrews eleven six 6 teaches us this much. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Translation, if you are coming to God by faith, trusting in him, I don't care what else you do. You are not going to please him. God doesn't want your money. God doesn't want your sacrifices. God doesn't want steps of obedience. Because all of those things can be born out of the wrong heart. God wants your trust. God wants you to say, apart from you, I can do nothing. I need you for everything in this life and the life to come. And when you come to God like that, with a heart of faith and trust in who he is, then of course, your money's going to be directed to kingdom purposes. Of course, you're going to start living a life of obedience. Of course, you're going to start doing things that also please and bless God. But it has to be rooted in faith. God honors faith. And this is exactly what verse 7 teaches us. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. So that little word, therefore, is loaded. It's significant. It means because. So verses 1 through 6, again, was this explanation of the fact that God answered the prayers of David and answered the prayers of Israel. And then verse 7 tells us why. It's because the king trusts in the Lord. David had faith. Again, remember, some nations, some people trust in chariots and trust in horses. They were putting all their hope in their military power and their technology, and their superior numbers. And they looked at puny little Israel, and they thought, oh my gosh, we're going to just mop the floor with these people. We're going to destroy them. They're nothing. And King David leads Israel to firmly root their trust in the God who fights their battles. And the Lord takes that little faith. And he says, because you are my people, my love for you is constant. In fact, it's called steadfast love here. And therefore, I will bless you. I will protect you. I will take care of you. I will deliver you. 
And I love this because David's recipe for success was quite simple and it is available to every single one of us. We tend to overcomplicate things. And that's why we can't talk about these simple gospel truths enough. That it is always only about faith, that that's what God wants out of us. There are people who spend their entire life in church and they still come to the conclusion that it's about your works and that if you blow it and you have a bad week, God's mad at you and hellfire and brimstone are going to be poured out on you. And if you read your Bible the last seven days and you haven't gotten too angry with your wife and you kind of done things good, then God's going to bless you. It does not work like that. You're either in the family by faith and your sins are forgiven and you're a child of God or you're out of the family. And when you're in the family, sure, your father will discipline you when you get out of line, but he will never, ever, ever revoke his love from you. He'll be with you forever, constantly. That's what the language of verse seven tells us. This is covenant language. It's the steadfast love of the Lord that will never let David or you, Christian, be moved. Steadfast love, we've talked about this. Hesed, it's covenant language. It could also be translated unfailing love. We enter into a covenant with God by faith. Our end of the bargain is to say, I'm going to depend on you. I'm not worshiping false gods. I'm not trusting in anything else. I'm not following my own heart's desires. You're my God. You're my Lord. You're my King. That's how we enter the covenant. It's by faith. And God's into the covenant is to say, great, I will never stop loving you. I will never give up on you. I will never revoke my presence from you. My spirit will be with you forever. Philippians 1, 6 puts it this way. And I am sure of this, Paul could write, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 through 30 says this, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So there he's speaking of the fact that if God began the work in you, if he predestined you, then he's going to continue the work in you. He's going to call you. And if he's continuing the work in you, he's going to complete it in you because you will be glorified. But what's amazing about Romans 8 is that all of the language there is in the past tense, even though it's talking about a future reality. None of us have been glorified yet. But the way Paul could write this is he could say, those whom he justified, he also glorified, past tense, because from God's perspective, it's a done deal. You're in the covenant. You're part of the family. You can't escape. You might have family members here you don't like that much. You can't get away. You're in this thing to the end. So from our perspective, we still have many trials to endure. We have a lot of battles that still have to be fought. But from God's perspective, it is a done deal. You will be glorified. This is the glory of being a part of God's covenant people. Okay, moving on to verses 8 through 12. There's a shift that happens here 
And it's a shift in the attention. The attention so far has been on the past victory, the answered prayer. But now God's people go on celebrating future victories that they become assured of. So here we see the king's future is assured. Now, there's an important question to be answered here. And it's this, who is the you, Y-O-U, in these verses? Notice starting in verse 8, it's your hand. Verse 9, you will make them. So who is you? Is it the king or is it the Lord? I take it to be the king. Uh, It seems to me that the attention now is continuing on the king as it began on the king. And we're learning of future victories that he's going to experience. Now, it's possible that this section of the psalm, which was a song, we know that from the superscription, it says to the choir master at the beginning. So it's possible that this section of the song was sung or spoken by a priest Or again, the congregation could be speaking to the king here. What we learn is that David is going to go on and continue fighting battles. He's going to eliminate his enemies. But again, in these future victories, it is the Lord who will, according to verse 9, swallow them up in his wrath. So future victories are coming in these verses. But God's people are not foolish. They say, look, if God's given us the victory in the past, I think we should, we should keep banking on him. We should keep looking to him to give us the future victories. So David looks to God for all future victories. And he's given in this section assurance that he will, in fact, have these victories. Throughout the Psalter, we find this same pattern. What God does for us in the past strengthens our faith for the future. In fact, this is the pattern that you see among the Jewish people throughout all of the Old Testament scriptures. Constantly, when they were faced with a new challenge, especially if it was a military challenge, they would go back and they would look to the quintessential event in their national history that demonstrated that God loved them And God would deliver them. And that event was the exodus out of Egypt. Over and over and over again in the Old Testament. And you see this even many times in the Psalter. They face a challenge and they go, okay, this is scary. Oh, but wait. Something happened to our ancestors when they were also in a scary situation. There was an incredible empire called Egypt. And we were slaves there. And there's no human explanation for how we ever got out of there. The only explanation is that God loves us and he fought our battles and he delivered us. And all of a sudden their faith would be strengthened for this future challenge. And this is what we see once again going on here. God answered the prayer of Psalm 20. They celebrated that for seven verses. And now they turn their attention to the rest of their future. And they're saying, God's going to do it again. He's going to do it again. He's going to see us through. He's going to give our king continual victory. And this section speaks of complete future victory. Verse 8 says, your hand will find out all your enemies. 
Okay, not, not most, all of your enemies. Verse 10, you will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. That's a way of saying you will have total victory. You will destroy the entire nation. They will not be able to rise up again. Now, of course, David's reign was one of spectacular victory. Throughout David's time as the king of Israel, he would defeat many armies. He would expand and secure Israel's borders, making them a formidable, formidable power in the Middle East. But just like the first section of this psalm had messianic hints, remember back in verse 4 where it talked about length of days forever and ever, we can see messianic hints here as well. And the reason for that is because when David's rule came to a close, when he died, Israel still had many enemies around her and Israel's greatest defeats were still ahead of her. But when Jesus returns to judge the living and the dead, truly he will make them as a blazing oven when he appears, verse 9, and his hand will find out all his enemies, verse 8. 1 Thessalonians 5, 1 through 3 tells us this. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. When Jesus comes and Jesus judges the earth, his victory will be total. Every one of his enemies, every single person who raises their fist and shakes their hand at God and says, you'll never be my king. You'll never rule over me. I'm, I'm in charge. Every person who lives their life that way will have another thing coming to them. Jesus's victory over them will be complete. And total. This song ends appropriately enough with a shout of praise. Verse 13, we see here the congregation's concluding praise. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. The congregation is likely at this point singing this lyric with one unified voice singing this praise to the Lord. And their desire here is that God's strength would be seen and would be acknowledged by all people. They want him to be exalted. They want his strength and his power to be exalted. And so they sing of it. And did you know that this is one of the ways, one of the chief ways that God's power is seen by others? You know, all of us have non-Christians around us every single day. They're looking at your life and they're peering in. All of us, every single Sunday, probably have non-Christians who are gathering with us in our church. And they're watching and they're paying attention and they're seeing what we're doing here. And when we who have experienced God's salvation and God's deliverance sing praise to him, declaring his goodness to us, when we offer up prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude and we reflect on the power and the goodness of God. When we hear testimonies of other believers talking about God 
and his radical work in their life and then being baptized like our brother Luke did just on Easter Sunday. All of that is testifying to God's power and his strength and the way that he still works in people's lives today. And so it's oftentimes through the praise and the worship and the testimony of God's people that God's power is put on display for the world to see. And people begin to recognize that there is a God in heaven and that Jesus is alive and that his spirit is among us and that God can be known by them even now, even today. In Psalm 19, we learn that the heavens declare the glory of God. But today we're reminded that so must we. We who have been redeemed, we who have had our sins forgiven, we who are indwelt by the spirit of God, we who have an eternal home that's being prepared for us in the heavens. How much more should we be declaring the glory of God? Every single day, the sun gets up like Psalm 19 talks about. And it runs its course with joy as it soars through the heavens. It never fails declaring and speaking of the glory of God. Every night the stars are shining in the heavens and the moon is reflecting the glory of the sun. And it never fails. They do their job. They bring glory to God. How much more should we, the pinnacle of God's creation, who have been redeemed by his own blood, Exert ourselves in declaring the glory of God through song, through prayer, through speech, through action. Wanting everybody around us, everybody who knows us, to know that God is alive and he's well and he's powerful and he's good. And his love and his mercy is available to them too. And if they would but turn from their sin abandoning their reliance on themselves or anything else and put their trust in the Lord that they would also like us become part of his family and become recipients of his love forever. That's our responsibility. That's our job. But it's also our great privilege. 